Welcome to the Business in Development podcast, a podcast brought to you by the Center for Business and Development Studies at Copenhagen Business School. With this podcast, we wish to bring you the latest insights from our research on the roles of business, government and civil society in promoting inclusive and sustainable development in the global south. My name is Sarah Netta. I'm the producer of this podcast. In each episode, you will meet one of my colleagues and their guests who will present their take on pressing development issues. With this podcast, we wish to create a platform for a wide variety of actors and to combine conversations with thought leaders, practitioners, world-leading experts and voices from the field. Welcome to this podcast of the Center for Business and Development Studies at the Copenhagen Business School. I am Peter Lund Thompson. I'm a professor of corporate sustainability and corporate social responsibility at the Copenhagen Business School. And today I have with me Faryal Sadik from Interloop in Pakistan. Faryal, welcome. Nice to have you here with us today. Thank you so much, Peter, for the opportunity. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. So for many years, I have been uh, traveling between Denmark uh, as a professor of corporate sustainability and social responsibility and traveling to India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. And I have been following the, the development of the sustainability debate in, in, in relation to clothing and textile very much. And at one point, I then happened to arrive in Faisalabad, a major industrial town in Pakistan, and I actually heard about Interloop, which sounded like a very exciting and interesting company. And that's when I met you first. So, Faryal, could you just briefly describe to us like a little bit about yourself? What is your background and what are you currently doing? What's your job about? So, uh, thank you, Peter. Um, like you introduced, I'm Faryal Sadek. I'm the Vice President for Sales and Marketing at uh, Interloop. I've been with the organization for about uh, seven years um, and I look after um, all aspects of business development as well as uh, sustainability for um, Interloop's multi-products. Um, Before Interloop, I used to work as a management consultant at Ernst Young. I've done that for about 10 years and I also have another very strategic role, which is to try to take care of two spirited boys of eight and nine years old. I'd say that's the toughest job of all, all my portfolios. A little bit uh, about Interloop. So Interloop uh, Limited is a multi-category producer of uh, apparel products. We are headquartered in Pakistan and we are the largest listed uh, company on the Pakistan Stock Exchange. Um, we have uh, manufacturing in Pakistan, in Sri Lanka, and as well as sale offices in Netherlands, US, Japan, and China. Uh, we do work with a host of global brands and retailers producing goods like socks, denim, and knitwear. I'd say that's that's more of what we do, but what I'd say of who we really are, we, we are a team of, um, I'd say, passionate people, 30,000 strong, um, working towards a common goal of creating a ethical and a sustainable business. 
Okay, that's very interesting. So it's a very big producer. I was wondering, I suppose that I uh, I once spoke to your father and I, th I, th I think it was your father and his brother who started this company. So I was wondering, since you were very young, was it kind of a given that you were going to come into this role and play a major role in the, in the management of the company? Or was that something that you kind of discovered uh, along the way? No, it was something that I discovered along the way. I moved uh, to London when I was 18. I, I went there to, to um, get myself a degree and then I stayed on. That's where I worked as a management consultant. And uh, I really didn't have any plans of uh, coming back. But at the time that I made the decision, um, and I still believe um, the same thing, um, is that working here at Interloop means that you're working in an apparel manufacturing. Obviously, the environment is very different to working with cutting-edge consulting work in London. But the impact that you have on this scale, I just said 30,000 people. Each person is now associated with another five people in that household. So, so just 150,000 people that are directly linked to Interloop. So the impact that you can make in terms of their livelihoods, in, in terms of um, how you change their standard, I think it's huge. And that really drives you a lot more. Um, yeah, so I'm glad I made that decision. But it was definitely not a given. I, I don't think I ever really thought about joining the, the firm. Yeah, I was focused on consulting on banking. Okay, so that's a big of a career jump. And you're saying you're also managing this as a mother, this kind of work. So how do you manage being sort of at the very in the very top management of such a large company and also having time with, with family? I mean, how does this come together? Because I know there are not many sort of women at your level of, of, of top management in the imperial textile sector in Pakistan and I think most other uh, countries. So how do you manage to juggle the home life with the work life? It's a it's an age old problem, right? That um, almost every woman has faced, whether they are in 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 Denmark or or in Pakistan. So something that I've experienced personally, and, and I believe having the right support network, whether that's at home or whether that's um, the flexibility that you have, or whether it's the right infrastructure in terms of daycares, um, that is something that really helps a lot. So um, at Interloop, we have daycares. Now, my kids are a lot older, so they're not going to those daycares, but um, our women can come into work um, safely and then leave their kids um, at, um, at the daycares. I personally use the option of flexible working a lot more uh, um, at my level. So I'm able to flex my hours, work from home, and the same options also available to our people. And I, I think that is one of the biggest um, tools in really managing um, both the, um, the work and, and, and life uh, at home. Okay, that's really interesting. So coming back a little bit to, to Interlube as a company, so I was just wondering at a very basic level, what kind of products do you produce? Are we talking about home textile or is it like fashion clothes for women or what exactly are the types of products that Interlube specializes in? So Interlube started its business in 1992 and till 2018 our flagship or our biggest uh, products were socks. So we make about 800 million pairs of socks annually. Um, I mean, to put that into context, that's the, more than the combined population of Brazil, US um, and, and, and Pakistan. So that's a lot of socks that we make. And, and we make them from for global brands like Nike, Adidas, Puma, and also retailers um, um, like Uniqlo um, and, and many more European retailers. 
Um, along with socks, we've now diversified into other apparel products. We make um, knitted products. Um, you can say T-shirts, um, hoods, sweatpants, as well as um, denim products, which is uh, mostly denim bottoms and, and jackets. Um, and so all of that combines, we are close to last year, our annual turnover was close to $480 million. So it's, it's a fairly large organization um, uh, which um, then supplies products to um, almost uh, most of the um, countries around the world, Europe, US, Japan, um, China, and many more. I, I guess one could actually call uh, Interloop a multinational company then, because I think you also have operations in, in other countries, right? Uh, maybe you could just briefly let us know about this. That's correct. So we have manufacturing in Pakistan. Uh, we have about uh, five, uh, actually six production facilities in Pakistan. And then we have manufacturing in Sri Lanka as well, uh, plus some contract facilities in, in China. Uh, in terms of the services that we provide, so product is one aspect, but along with product, we also um, provide design services, planning services, warehousing. So all of those services are housed in other countries, um, including the Netherlands. Um, we have an office in the U.S., um, sourcing office in China, and then another sales and marketing office in, in Japan. So, yes, across um, six different countries. Wow, that sounds really like a very big uh, operation. Now, one of the things that originally sort of attracted me towards uh, Interloop and understanding more about Interloop was sustainability work that you do. So in a fairly brief way, can you talk to us a little bit about what kind of sustainability work is is Interloop involved in? It's going to be a challenge to be brief, <laughs> uh, Peter, but I'll, I'll, I'll try as I shared with you earlier, the interloop uh, reason for being is really to be an ethical and a sustainable company. So sustainability is, is part of our mission. It's, it's within the purpose statement of interloop itself. Um, so we've been um, working on, on different environmental and social um, um, impacts since day one. And since 2018, we've been measuring and reporting our progress against them. Uh, but if I tell you what are some of the four or five main areas that we focus on. So we uh, our, our number one priority is, um, or our top priority is, um, the reduction of greenhouse gas emission. As you know, the um, fashion industry is is known to be a big um, greenhouse gas um, emission source between four to eight percent. I know it's a big range. Of, uh, um, that's the number that's uh, being shared by World Resource Institute. Um, so uh, as a manufacturer, it's, it's very key for us that we um, start to adopt more and more clean energy, um, phase out coal from our uh, production and really um, adopt um, greener technologies, reducing our emission. Our second priority area is water. So the water that we use in our um, production system, we've been um, adopting new technologies, uh, we've been um, adopting new production processes to reduce the use of water. And the water that we are using, we try to reuse it um, and, and recycle it as much as possible. We have a new apparel facility that's coming up and the water treatment plant in that apparel facility uh, has the capacity to uh, to recycle um, up to 20% of its water and we'll be expanding that to 60% um, over the next um, um, five years. Our third focus area is now um, 
inducting more and more sustainable raw materials into our supply chain. Um, and we work on a lot of um, direct-to-farm projects where interloop organic cotton is a big project that we're working on. Last but not the least, community um, is, is an important aspect as well, and we continue to invest in creating fair and inclusive opportunities uh, for education, health, and sports in our communities. Wow, that's really interesting. So you're making a lot of big investments in, in uh, sustainability upgrading, if we can call it like that. But I'm wondering, this cannot be cheap. I mean, I, I, what is the cost of a new water treatment plant, for example? Are we talking like 1 million US dollars or 2 million US dollars? So what's the scale that we are operating at? It's not cheap. The, the the scale is is huge. It, it goes into millions of dollars. You're absolutely right. But there are two ways to look at it. You can look at it as a cost or you can look at it as an investment. So for us, really investing, whether it is an ETP or whether it is a daycare, for us, really it, it's an investment that then pays for itself. It pays for itself uh, in terms of uh, compliance requirements. It pays for itself in terms of making sure that we don't have that negative impact on our water supply and it pays in terms of your people being more engaged. So all of these factors, whether it's um, daycares or whether it's the solar plants that we're putting up, these are expensive, but we consider them an, an investment, not a cost. Okay, but then one might wonder why make such large-scale investments, you know, is that uh, basically a buyer requirement or is it kind of... Uh the GNA of the company or is it pressure from, I don't know, environmental organizations that would want, that would make you do, I mean, as I said, it's not cheap to use millions of dollars to make these types of investments. So where's the, I mean, what's the driver behind that? Uh, Peter, the, it, it's very clear to us, the driver for us is, is our mission, which is to be an agent of positive change. And we're making a lot of these investments because we believe it is the right thing to do. And in the long term, it pays back for itself. So it also makes business sense. ETP, let's say wastewater treatment, understood that's a compliance requirement. Um, a lot of the customers have certain standards. But there are so many things that we are working on, um, whether it's um, inducting more and more renewable energy or world-class daycare centers. Those are not compliance requirements. They are not mandatory but we we've invested in them because we believe it's the right thing to do and it pays for itself in the long term okay one of the interesting things you told me is that making a more transparent value chain a supply chain is a key priority for interloop i suppose if we talk about denmark we talk about scandinavia there's an increasing consumer ngo and public regulatory interested in making value chains more transparent in other words, people want to know where do the products they buy, where do they come from, what are the contents in those products, who makes them, what are the conditions of those people that make them in terms of wages, hours of work, etc. And also, what are the environmental impacts of the products and the contents of the products that they actually buy. But I'm thinking from your perspective, I mean, this is maybe a consumer perspective from the global north, but from your perspective as a major manufacturer in a country such as Pakistan, why would, I mean, you be interested in making your value chain more transparent? I mean, I've heard certain manufacturers saying that it's actually a benefit to them to have a less transparent value chain. I'm sorry, it's, I'll sound like a broken record, but it really goes back to what your fundamental belief is. 
Like I shared with you earlier, our, our mission is to be an agent of positive change for our stakeholders by creating an ethical and sustainable business. So we've been operating at a very high level of integrity and ethics from day one. And that was one of the core reasons why Interloop became a public listed company was the drive to be transparent and share our financial information with our investors and all other stakeholders. The same philosophy goes through um, the data that we share within the company and your results, profits, bonuses, performance management KPIs within our organization. And then it's the same approach to be transparent when it comes to measuring our environmental impact, our social impact. And as I shared with you, we publish our sustainability report annually as per GRI standards. And, and, and we take the same approach into supply chain partners. It, it is still early days, so we're exploring and how we bring in visibility. But if I, the, the three examples that I shared with you, every time we've been disclosing information, we've been transparent, it has helped us get better and improve ourselves. And I believe the same will happen um, as we go deeper and deeper into the supply chain. Okay, so you're looking for self-improvement. Absolutely. That is, that, that is absolutely one aspect of it. And with self-improvement comes so many other things that are connected, right? People who are connected to it, livelihoods that are connected to it. So as a result, all these peripheries also start to improve. Right. So now I've understood you spend quite a bit of time and energy on developing a traceability system that would allow you to sort of find out where your raw materials come from, how they are made, etc. Maybe you could explain to us a little bit in more detail. I mean, what is this traceability system all about and how is it made? At Interloop, uh, we have a three-tiered approach to traceability. Number one is really um, giving visibility into our supply chain uh, base. So Interloop is on the HIG index. HIG index has an environmental assessment and then a social assessment. Um, and all the facilities are then um, logged onto that platform. There's a verification of uh, the performance of that facilities. So all of our facilities are verified um, on the HIG index. And now we are um, rolling it out to our strategic supply base. So getting our suppliers to join the same platform and then offer more transparency and visibility into, into their environmental and social uh, performance. That's one aspect. The second aspect is the mapping of, uh, um, of all our raw materials and their journey through the different tiers of production, starting from the farm, to interloop facilities um, um, and, and then onwards to the customer. And then eventually mapping the impact, both social and environment of environmental impact of those uh, raw materials. Our last tier of uh, traceability is then the verification and authenticity of those raw materials through testing, documentation and uh, certification. And how do you actually then, I mean, record that? Do you have an internal data management system that allows you to map uh, the movements and, and the different contents of, for example, the raw materials? Or, I mean, I know you are using HIG index, or HIGS index. Maybe you could briefly explain what is the HIGS index for non-specialists? And do you have your own data management system for sort of gathering the rest of the information? How do you handle this? Yes, so all of this comes together in our um, proprietary technology called LoopTrace. LoopTrace is an uh, um, interloop-developed uh, uh, solution where uh, we are focusing, our focus has been uh, on cotton, uh, but we are starting with the farms and we're tracking the journey of that raw material 
from farmers to ginners to spinners to then um, interlude production. Um, we are um, going to be eventually uh, also tracking how um, orders move with, with those raw materials, where claimable material come in, how do you associate certification with them, and um, most importantly, the environmental impact of, of those raw materials. Right now you have generic average numbers that are associated to, let's say, the production of cotton, but what exactly is the impact of the cotton that we've used? Um, our, our aim is to include that um, as well and, and, and really make it a much larger scale solution in Pakistan. We currently have 20,000 farmers who are already part of the database and we'd be rolling it out to a much uh, larger um, uh, network as we partner with more uh, manufacturers and integrators. Okay, wow, that sounds like a lot of work and again, investment in money, time and resources. As a researcher, you know, we sometimes like to be critical in our analysis and pose those questions to practitioners, ourselves and others, a little bit maybe that, that could be seen as a bit sometimes controversial or also maybe playing the role of the devil's advocate. So I'm going to throw a couple of questions at you here towards the end of, of our talk, which, which I have been wondering about in, 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 in relation to the establishment of such traceability systems. So the first question is, why do this? I mean, is anyone ever going to be reading and, and, and looking at that data outside of Interloop? I mean, who would actually benefit? Who, who would care about this? Or is it just data that's going into a database? It's going to be sitting at that database and nobody will ever be using that data for anything. I think it's a fair question. I have asked that question myself on on the effort versus the result, because you're right, this is a lot of effort. It's uh, many, many people um, being hired through integrators, so it is a lot of effort. When we started this journey, because this is a few years old, um, there wasn't a big requirement on, on the data that we are capturing, uh, for example, the journey of, of, of our raw materials. But as as times are evolving and as you know new legislation is coming up in eu plus um, uh, us customs and border controls the requirement to really declare on where your materials came from what was the transport route it took what were the scope certificates transaction certificates um, what's the authenticity of those materials is becoming more and more important and uh, and customers are beginning to really establish their own traceability playbooks and ask for this I'll, I'll give you an example. We've recently had one of our customers uh, said that the new requirement is that any claimable, so by claimable, what I mean is when the product would say organic or recycled, that means it's a claim. So any claimable material, if there's a request from that particular customer, we have to submit all records, chain of custody, scope certificates, X, Y, Z, in seven days um, and where that, those raw materials came from. So, so the... The requirement is definitely building up. It is going to be used, I'm quite confident. And for us, it will all be in one system. It will be a lot easier for us to pull it up and share it transparently. What you're saying is that if you want to continue exporting, let's say you're located in Pakistan, India, Malaysia, or another uh, production country in, in, in Asia or Africa or Latin America for that matter, if you want to continue exporting to the United States and Europe, you have to get involved in making your sort of value chain more transparent and you have to engage in this data gathering. That is simply going to be a requirement for staying in business. Do I understand this correctly? You've said it better than I. 
Absolutely, yes. So our drive started a lot earlier, but it is becoming apparent that it is soon going to be part of your regulation compliance. So it's it's not a nice to have. It's going to be a must have. Now, if you look at the second point, which is a bit critical, okay, we're talking about, we're in a center for business and development studies here. So we also look at the impact on businesses on development, socioeconomic development in a broader sense. So from what you're saying, it doesn't immediately seem to me that, for example, the workers who are in working in Interloop or necessarily, let's say, cotton farmers may benefit from from all the gathering of all of this data. And I suppose they might be asked to to give certain types of data and you would have to talk to them. So they have to spend their time on this. So are there any benefits at all for workers in Interloop or and farmers in, in your value chain? Or is it basically a regulatory requirement coming from Europe and the United States? Um, so like I shared, when we started on these um, direct-to-farm projects, it, it wasn't a requirement. So for us, the drive was obviously to map our supply chain and bring visibility into it. But the second really important aspect was also uh, improving the well-being of the lives connected with uh, with this whole industry. So um, a lot of the budget that we've allocated to this project is, is our uh, corporate social responsibility budget. So we are not only just developing this platform, at the same time, we're also training farmers, we're giving them training, we're doing capacity building. So we're really um, uh, working on how we... Um, build that capacity into their farm base. And I do believe eventually, like health and safety compliance, there's so much audit fatigue, but it has helped improve standards within factories. So I do believe that eventually when the supply chain starts to become visible and it's apparent what premium is going to these farmers, it is going to um, start to um, get better. Yeah, I guess you're mentioning there has been a lot of uh, concern about, you know, auditing, verification procedures, money being spent on uh, on this and hiring consultants to, to do this kind of work. So I'm actually wondering myself, I mean, how do you verify the data? And in order for the data to be credible, would it be necessary to involve like external parties that are not auditing firms or consultants, for example, like independent trade unions or NGOs, or how do you see this question? Um, so I'll give you uh, one example. We uh, are doing a direct-to-farm project uh, for organic cotton. It's called Interloop Organic Kapas. Kapas is the local name for cotton in, in Pakistan. That's how farmers recognize it. And uh, when it comes to organic cotton, you need to obviously have um, non-GMO seeds and, and uh, no fertilizer and pesticides. So there's a lot of testing involved. There's the control union that certifies the process, and we've received our first certification. But at the same time, we're also building in further controls ourselves. So we have an implementation partner who's overseeing this uh, project. We've done our own seed multiplication where we've taken non-GMO seeds, planted them over 300 acres, and then supplied them to these farmers. We are now working with these farmers to make sure that when they're doing crop rotation, the non-cotton crop that they put in, we're also getting that organic and so that they can market that crop as well. So there's increased incentive for them to continue on the path of staying organic because it's, it's a difficult path. Your yield goes down as you take out those uh, fertilizers and pesticides. And then we're working with, um, we will be working with Organic Cotton Accelerator, which is another 
verification body of uh, organic cotton supply chain. So you absolutely have to build in the controls and the testing to make sure, especially when it comes to claimable material. Okay, but that sounds very uh, interesting and elaborate. So if we talk a little bit about going forward from here, where you'll be going with all of this work about traceability and transparency, one of the things that I have noticed in my work on sustainability, in, in particular in the garment and textile value chain, is that very often the perspectives that we hear in countries like Denmark or Norway, Sweden, the UK, is the perspective from brands. What are the brands' vision of sustainability? One of the things that we hear less about is is perspective of, let's say, the manufacturers on, on sustainability. So while you are doing a lot of uh, interesting work that has a potentially large-scale impact, not only in Pakistan, but also in other countries, people may not be aware of that in Europe or the United States, to be frank. Is that a correct assertion, or what do you think? Is that a challenge for a company such as uh, Interloop? I believe it is a correct assertion. And if you really look at all the commitments that these global brands and retailers have made in terms of reducing their, let's say, emissions, most of these emissions are concentrated in the supply chains at the manufacturer's end. So this is where that bulk of the work has to be done in in in, in production, in processing, in extraction. And I think there needs to be more... Um, Focus. There needs to be more investment from global companies on how manufacturers go about it. I, I gave you our example. We've been doing it because we feel it's the right thing to do. Our customers love it that we do it. But is there any sort of um, investment or financial help or incentives? Not really. So I'd say largely manufacturers have to figure it out uh, on their own. And And we still have in the buying world where the first question is mostly about the first cost and not eventual cost, the total cost of uh, ownership where uh, such investments, uh, uh, I mean, buyers ask about it, but would they prefer it over a few pennies that are reduced by another uh, producer? Maybe not. Uh, But those attitudes are also changing and evolving. And I think as consumers become more aware, more demanding, I do hope that the the balance of, um, I'd say, power becomes a bit more balanced. So if we just talk or finish here with the immediate next steps, so what are your immediate next steps in terms of uh, work in relation to transparency and how are you going to, I guess, make more people aware of the work that is happening in, in your company? Because I can tell you none of my students here in CBS know about it. For that, I, We have a lot of students here. They would know about it, I think. So maybe there's a message to be brought to a broader audience. That's what I'm suggesting. Yes. Oh, I thought you were inviting me to CBS. Well, you have already been invited in previous discussions. (laughs) So you are going to come here, hopefully, and and have this kind of a dialogue with our students. But in broader sense, how are you going to take your sustainability work to the next level in terms of starting to make more people aware about what you're doing. So you're not only doing it sort of and talking to customers about it, but it also reaches a broader audience. It is important to obviously um, talk about the work that we're doing. Um, You can get a lot more people on board, a lot more collaboration. So 
with our um, loop trace technology. We're already talking to the Pakistan Textile Council, other manufacturers in Pakistan to see how it becomes a more of a, a national standard. Then we're also talking to international uh, or global summits uh, uh, where we can participate, we can present ourselves. But I'd say our primary focus is going to remain on the work that we're doing, which is, you know, focus on these traceability direct to farm projects and see how we scale them and make sure that our work speaks for itself. And I guess you'll be coming to the Copenhagen or the Global Fashion Summit in June in Copenhagen, right? I mean, um, that was the intention. That's right. Yes. So I, I am uh, going to be participating along with uh, one to two people from my sustainability team. And I'm hoping we can uh, put up a demo for um, Loop Trace there. And if not, we'll be there in person talking to people, uh, build like-minded um, sustainability enthusiasts. Thanks a lot for the time you've taken out to speak to us on this podcast. Uh, I think it was very informative bringing a different vision or perspective on sustainability and also facing some tough questions around, you know, the value and, and the sort of uh, benefits from doing all of this uh, interesting work. So thank you so much for joining us and looking forward to, to keeping in touch on these issues. Thank you so much, Peter, for the opportunity. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you wish to stay in the loop or participate in our podcast, Please subscribe to the Business and Development Podcast on your usual platform or contact me, Sarah Netta.